Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Friday. We made it. The weekend is here. It's awesome. We had an awesome week. We're having an awesome week. And we're going to stick the landing. Korean Cosell, Steve Kim, just around the corner. Senator Josh Hawley, a man that I've known since he was a high school football player in Kansas City, Missouri at Rockhurst High School. Uh, He's going to join us. We're going to talk about his new book about manhood. And we'll ask him, you know, some political questions, the Durham report, uh, the, the debt ceiling deal that's raging. Can't wait to talk with Josh Hawley again. Met Josh Hawley when he was a high school football player at Rockhurst uh, High School in Kansas City, Missouri. Now he's a big time senator. He used to be the attorney general of Missouri. Anyway, can't wait to talk to Josh Hawley. Stay tuned for that. But we'll start by bringing in the Korean Cosell and talking about the NBA playoffs last night, in particular, LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers versus the Denver Nuggets and Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray. Nuggets now take a 2-0 series lead. I think the game was significant last night, not just because I don't think this 2-0 lead is insurmountable. So that's not what I took away from the game. What I took away from the game was that for the first time that I've ever watched LeBron James, I thought he showed his age last night. I I don't want to sound like Max Kellerman and the way Max Kellerman talked about Tom Brady the last five years, six years of Tom Brady's career, but I felt like watching last night, oh, Father Time has finally caught LeBron James. The missed layups the tired, lazy three-pointers that he took in the fourth quarter. I, I, I just, I, it was the first time where I was like, oh, LeBron looks 38. And I do think that is significant. I, I do think that is something that's going to linger throughout the rest of this playoff series. Don't think the 2-0 uh, lead is insurmountable. Anthony Davis is still there, although he didn't play that well. But this Hachimura, this guy looks for real to me. And, and he's had back-to-back great games for the Lakers. Both of these games and Denver were in striking distance with the Lakers having a chance. And that's despite LeBron James not playing at superstar LeBron James level. They had a chance last night to steal this game. This series is not over, but if the Lakers are going to do it, I would not be counting on seeing the superstar guy plays like he's 32 when he's really 38, LeBron James, I don't think that guy is coming back. He may have another great game or two in this series, but on a consistent basis, I think LeBron James is going to struggle. I think age is finally catching up with him. That was my takeaway from last night's game. Steve Kim, Am I making too much out of three or four missed layups by LeBron James, a bad fourth quarter where he took some horrible three-pointers, I thought just out of frustration. He didn't know what to do, so he jacked up some three-pointers. Do I sound like Max Kellerman going after Tom Brady by saying Father Tom is finally catching up with LeBron James? Uh, Ask me next Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, Again, remember the old axiom, NBA playoff series do not begin until the road team wins a game. A, a game. So 
Denver did what they had to do. They held serve at home. And I have felt from the beginning for the Nuggets to overcome the Lakers and the LeBron mystique, they had to be playing from ahead the whole time. They had to be up 2-0 because now mathematically, it's very simple. Lakers have to win four of the next five. Uh, as for LeBron, I think people have counted him out before. But keep this in mind. He's much closer to 40 than he is to 30. He, he's still an incredible player, but he's no longer at the apex. But, Jason, one thing you didn't mention, and again, so I'm going to say it's an excuse, Denver's in the altitude. Maybe for a guy like him, it affects him a little bit different at 38 years old. Uh, you could say he may have gotten acclimated, but he's only there for a few days. So I think that is certainly a factor. And if I'm Denver, specifically at home, when LeBron is on the floor, you've got to put pressure on him on both sides of the court. I would continue to push that pace as fast as possible. I'd bring back the old Doug Moe offense. First one to 130 wins. But I wouldn't count out the Lakers because, number one, remember this. The NBA is about programming. I don't want to sound like Oliver Stone here, but who do they really want representing the West? Do they want Denver or do they want the LeBron Lakers? So games three and four, I get, I get, a, I don't know, is it Scott Foster? Who's the equalizer here? Who's that official that's going to say, okay, <laughs> all right, guys, we're going back to Denver too. too. Again, I, I, I've been around this a little bit. Uh, I still remember game six of the 2002 Western Conference Finals. Now, as a Laker fan, I remember watching that game when the Sacramento Kings were fouled into oblivion in game seven. I said, that didn't look right. I am not usually a conspiracy theorist, but that particular game – was very shady to me. And so, again, I have a hard time believing Denver's going to win game three. The emotion's all going to be at the Staples Center, whatever they're calling it now. LeBron's going to catch his breath. Game four is the pivotal one. That's where Denver can stick the dagger into the Lakers' heart. Listen, I think we're in mostly agreement. I don't think the Lakers are dead. I'm just saying... We're going to need this Hachimura to continue to play at a high level. And I saw enough things last night that I'm like, this dude may be for real. He may be a legitimate player in the NBA and like a legitimate scoring threat. Now, they're going to need AD to go back to being the 40-point AD, not the guy that he was last night, where until very late when he hit a big three-pointer, he was relatively ineffective offensively. But if they, they can get a big game out of A.D., Hachimura keeps playing the way that he's playing. They won't need LeBron at home uh, to be as great as the typical LeBron. I love your point that I hadn't thought about. Playing at altitude at 38, that probably did wear on LeBron James. But, but, but the other thing where I question LeBron, He hasn't been a three-point shooter all year. How he got into that fourth quarter last night and took that succession (laughs) of three-pointers, I have no idea what he's thinking. It wasn't smart by him. The blown layups, the botched dunk. Because right before the botched dunk where he fumbled the ball out of bounds on a wide-open breakaway, right before that, he had missed a layup. He gets to the end of the game, makes a great steal, great defensive play, misses a layup. LeBron was awful last night. I love your point again about altitude perhaps playing a role. I'm not ready to – I do think Denver's going to win this series, but I agree with you. 
Adam Silver is going to do everything in his power to make sure this series goes six, if not seven games. Jason, uh, one thing, Charles Barkley has said this for years, role players in big games are much more comfortable at home than they are on the road. That's why they're role players, right? So I expect the supporting cast to be a little bit better. As it relates to AD, his biggest impact has to be defensively. If he's going to be inconsistent on one side of the floor, he has to use his length and his shot-blocking ability and the overall force that he is in guarding the rim to make it difficult for Jokic. So for whatever how long this series goes, at least on that side of the floor, he has to be that guy that's going to at least impede this guy. Because if that doesn't happen, now they have no shot. The other thing is going back to LeBron. So think about this. You're old, your legs aren't underneath you, and this is what you call in boxing, and Teddy Atlas talks about it all the time, the path of least resistance and the silent agreement. So if you're LeBron and you're tired and you're gassed and you're not an outside shooter, but you you don't want to make that effort to go into the traffic and really exert a lot of energy to play above the rim. So now you're thinking, oh, geez, I'm tired. I'm old. What's easier? Chucking up threes or actually going into the trees and trying to do stuff and draw fouls? To me, my view is this. You're LeBron. You get breathed on, they're going to call a foul. So if I'm the coach, if I'm Darvin Hand, I say, LeBron, look, we got two choices here. You could keep chucking up threes on a night it's not working, or you could use that NBA superstar treatment you get and get yourself to the free throw line. And that's that's where the LeBron critics will always draw upon where he's not Jordan. Because I guarantee you this, Jordan would have said, okay, you know what? I'm taking it to the cup. If I get hit across the face, I'll take my two free throws. I think you're right there. I, I want to move, pivot to a different point about this series, Nikola Jokic. And th- this is where I, your question about can the NBA survive without LeBron <laughs> in the uh, NBA Finals? Is Jokic a big enough star to carry this? Balt, Jimmy Butler, Jason Tatum on the other side in the, in the Eastern Conference side? Or, or are they still dependent upon LeBron James? And there are clues. I, I want to tie three things together and just like the amount of, I think, disrespect that Jokic receives from a lot of people over at ESPN that should. I want to play you this clip of Lisa Salters, one of their top sideline reporters. She acknowledged offhand in, in an interview she had never seen Jokic play. She's a sideline reporter in the NBA, has been working in the NBA for years, has never paid attention to Nikola Jokic. Let's play this clip. I like covering him, watching him just set up shop. It's funny, though, Susie. Like, I have never seen him play before. I've never, I haven't done a game here in Denver, and I was trying to figure out when. It's been at least... 10 years. Maybe I had a game uh, of theirs in the bubble. I think maybe I did. Uh, but this is really the first time I've had a chance to watch him play. And I got to admit, I have been sleeping on this guy. Um, he is spectacular. He is ridiculously good and just unstoppable. Uh, just watching him play last night, I was texting people saying, you know what? This guy is really good. And they're like, we've been trying to tell you that. And I admit, like, I, you know, had, hadn't really been paying much attention. I haven't had a lot. Of, I haven't had any games with Denver, either on the road or with them here at home. 
so I hadn't really paid much attention to him. Hmm. Hmm. I love the transparency, but this isn't someone doing a lot of homework on the NBA. The two-time MVP she had never seen because she hadn't been assigned one of their games. She, she's not watching any tape. She's not watching any games that she's not assigned to. Again, she's in the bubble. I think they went to the Western Conference Finals the bubble year. But she, <laughs> I just... I, I find this wow. interesting, but but let me tack on to this. Uh, no, no, go, go ahead. Just your thoughts on her transparency there. Well, first of all, I have great respect for Miss Salters. That, that she's a real pro. She has always been very good at her job. Highly competent, a trusted voice in my view. And Lisa, congratulations for being honest. But number two, don't ever do that again. But this brings about a bigger question or problem for the NBA. People are not watching this thing from about late October all the way till about mid-April. Just like me, welcome to the club. I mean, I, I think that's the bigger issue is that, look, I've been watching some of the playoffs. And people have come to me and say, hey, Steve, so you do watch the NBA? And I said, yeah, I watched the very last part of the playoffs. I mean, think about it. Uh, Lisa Salters cannot be the only person or myself that ignores this league for 85% of the season. Isn't that alarming? It, it is, but uh, Steve, you're in Vegas. Just about every fight, you know, you make your bones covering the fight game. You watch pretty much every fight every yeah. weekend, just as part of your job so you can be informed. Yeah. She's an NBA sideline right. reporter. She, she, yeah. And, and I do, unfortunately, pay attention. I do pay attention, unfortunately. Right. And here's, here's how every question, every post-game interview goes for Lisa Salters pretty much. So in the first half, you scored five points. In the second half, you scored 20. What changed? What changed? Every post-game interview. What? She's uh, not that good. She doesn't pay attention. She's oh, there oh, because well. of diversity, equity, and inclusion. She, I've watched her on the NFL. I watched her on the NBA. She's there for affirmative mm. action, diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's not that wow. good at her job. She's there because she's LGBTQ, bro. Oh, come on. I, Jay. Obviously, once again, you just Facts. can't make it a good Friday. There you go, burning bridges like General <laughs> Sherman through Atlanta. Look, here's the reality on Miss Salters. She loves football. I guarantee you she knows who Patrick Mahomes and her backup. I guarantee you she knows every quarterback in the league. Probably every no, left guard. Does. Probably every knows. Yes, she does. No. But in basketball, no. it's no. just like <laughs> No. <laughs> no. Unfortunately, I pay attention to this sideline reporting deal. She's not that good. Hey, okay. Look, see, and right. I made this point before. I've made this point before. You know how she got the Monday Night Football gig? Again. How? They were so, John Skipper was so into this diversity, equity, and inclusion. Her and Sean McDonough, alternate lifestyle, and, and they, they were so proud of themselves. For, uh, look at this. Our Monday Night Football crew, we got Sean McDonough and Lisa Salters, and we're forcing John Gruden to go on the road with him. And John Gruden's sitting here having to pretend like he likes these guys. And that's how 
ESPN got into so mm-hmm. much trouble because it was so crystal clear. McDonough and Lisa Salters, neither one, they don't like football. And they were forcing them to work with a guy who loved football, and they rubbed off on Gruden more than he rubbed off on them. All right, well, let me ask you this then. Uh, and I will, I will admit, years ago, there would be no NBA sideline reporter that would say, you know that Carl Malone, I think his nickname is the mailman? Wow, he's pretty good. They, they do that screen roll with that little guy with the short shorts. What's his name? Stop. It would ne- you're right. It would never happen. So I want to ask you this. Since you're just burning down everybody, torching everybody like a flamethrower, do you at least like Pam Oliver? How about her? She's good, right? Right? Old Pam? You don't like her? Pam Oliver not. used to be good. <laughs> used to <She's>, be. <laughs> I'll just... I'm a- I'm gonna I'm gonna just leave it at that. I'll 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 leave it at that. Look, all these oh, sideline reporters, man, it, it's 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 a gimmick. It's it, oh. none of it. You know, don't get me into trouble because I, you know, I, I'm oh, no, no, I'm no, already Jason. hated enough. You know, Aaron Andrews yeah. can't stand me. Can't you know? Oh. Won't yeah, speak uh, Jason. to me. Yeah. Oh, I, I can see why. By the way, Jason, I don't ever have to get you into trouble. You do that very well by yourself. So we're good there. Trust me. How about this? Adding on to this Lisa Salters deal, you got Mark Jackson, who left Ugh. Jokic off his uh, MVP yeah. ballot. You got Kendrick Perkins played the race card on him and, and cost him the MVP. What is ES? Kendrick Perkins, Mark Jackson, Lisa Salters, e- ESPN's three, uh, three black people very associated with the NBA. No respect for Nikola Jokic. Is, is this all a coincidence? Well, I'm just glad they don't cover boxing. They probably wouldn't recognize how good Tyson Fury is. But, yeah, I mean, with Mark Jackson, he's a good Christian. Look, he had at least admitted it. He didn't exactly go Jimmy Swagger and say, I'm sorry, I have sinned. But with Kendrick Perkins, I, I do believe that there was some sort of agenda. And I'm just, in my view, we talked about this, Jason, off air. If the Nuggets make this run and they hoist that Larry O'Brien trophy and Jokic just continues to be this triple-double machine in the postseason, that's going to be – I'm just telling you, on um, hot takes exposed, Perkins should get his own wing. He should literally get his own chapter in a Twitter account because he's probably given about 50 bad takes when it comes to that guy. Old takes exposed. Uh, you called it hot yes, takes exposed. That, that one, that one. Old Whatever. takes exposed. Yeah. We we may send that blooper to hot takes exposed or old takes oh, exposed thanks. and have them thanks. clown thanks. you. Hey, uh, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I want to transition uh, to Brett Favre, but but before I do that, let me take care of one of my newest partners and a a group that I'm so uh, honored to be partnered with here on this show, Covenant Eyes. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That rings so true to me. If you watch this show, if you attended Roll Call, if you understand what I'm trying to do here on the show, is I try to live very transparently. I try to confess my weaknesses and sins publicly as a reminder to be a better person. 
And that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to hold myself accountable. And that's one of the reasons why I've partnered with Covenant Eyes and I have adopted Covenant Eyes so that I'm account accountable. Accountability is not primarily others calling you out on your sin, but others calling you up to the person you are in Christ. A study on accountability found that you have a 65% chance of completing a goal if you commit to someone, and if you meet with that person, you will increase success by up to 95%. With Covenant Eyes, you invite someone you know and trust to hold you accountable as your ally. The Covenant Eyes app tracks activity on your internet devices, on your smartphone, on your laptop, on your iPad. The Victory app shares your activity feed right to your ally's phone. When you allow someone to see how you're using your devices, it changes how you use them. Together, these powerful tools bring honesty and transparency to your accountability relationships. $17 a month or $184 annually covers up to 10 users on unlimited devices. Use my promo code FEARLESS for a free 30-day trial. The superhighway for information, the internet, needs a seatbelt. Lord, I know. Covenant Eyes protects you, your family, your relationship with God, and all the other travelers on the information superhighway. Surf smart, buckle up with Covenant Eyes. I've done it. Again, I haven't been a big porn hub type guy, but I have used it. And that's part of the reason why I'm using Covenant Eyes. I don't want a relapse. I don't, there's all kinds of garbage on the internet. So I put my seatbelt on so I don't steer into that garbage because again, I've, known to be, I've been known to be pretty weak. Hold yourself accountable. Covenant Eyes is a great way to do it. You need a seatbelt. Even, I don't speed like I used to. I still wear my seatbelt. You need to do that on the internet. Put your seatbelt on, it's Covenant Eyes. Get a free 30-day trial by using my promo code FEARLESS. All right, uh, roll back uh, to Steve Kim. Steve, uh, I read this morning a very long-winded story in Sports Illustrated about Brett Favre. People watching this and my critics will say, didn't you just have Brett Favre on your show this week? And you're just going to cape up for Brett Favre because he was on your show. It's not what I'm about to do. I'm about to tell you what I think as a journalist about the Sports Illustrated story that allegedly paints this awful negative picture of Brett Favre and his involvement in some Mississippi welfare scandal. I read the entire piece. I marinated on the piece. I talked with others about the piece that had read the piece. Here's my takeaway as a journalist. They don't have anything other than mm. Brett Favre's name. <clears throat> That's what Michael Rosenberg and Sports Illustrated have. Hey, Brett Favre kept asking the governor of Mississippi for money for a volleyball facility at Southern, Miss, uh, Southern Mississippi University. And that is Brett Favre's alma mater. His daughter had played uh, volleyball there. The, he wanted a volleyball facility built there. He made some promises to the school uh, that he would help finance or help land the financing for it. And so Sports Illustrated has uncovered a series of text mm. message communications where Brett Favre kept asking the governor, hey, you're going to help me out here? You're going to help me out here? 
uh, hey, you set me up with this person. I think Nancy knew. Is she going to help me out here? They, they at late in the story, after trying to paint this picture as Brett Favre as the Don Corleone of of this uh, embezzlement scheme, they acknowledge. Well, there's nothing in here where Brett Favre acknowledges he even knows where the money's coming from. What it sounded like is that Brett Favre made some promises to his school, wanted the governor and taxpayer dollars to help with some of the promises he made to the school, the governor. And these government officials who actually had authority over how the money was used wouldn't tell Brett Favre no. They had all the authority. Brett Favre had none. His only authority was his ability to beg people, hey, help me finance or help pay for this facilities at Southern Miss. It's, I'm just sorry that they're using Brett Favre's name. Is the story a good look for Brett Favre? No. Have they shown any indication that anything Brett Favre did was criminal? No. He was a taxpaying citizen begging a government official to help pay for something on a state, a state university. The the, the whole embezzlement thing, they were taking state funds and applying it to a state institution and, and it should, but they can't even make the argument or they, no one has made the argument yet. Like they took these funds and oh, all these mothers and kids went starving and they didn't have the money for X, Y, and Z programs. None of that has ever made. I haven't seen any story that makes those allegations that someone was harmed here. I'm not saying what was done by these government officials certainly appears to be illegal. But Brett Favre has no authority over any of that money. Uh, Brett Favre is being used here to elevate these stories, help people win journalism awards, and to help people look like, hey, I'm not racist. I brought down Brett Favre. That's my takeaway. Yeah, my takeaway is this. That story is only the second worst thing Sports Illustrated has done this week. Did you see their swimsuit cover? Uh, Who they put on there? Where have you gone, Paulina (laughs) Poroskova? Why have you gone Cindy Crawford? I never knew I had it so good as a child. Second of all, I think that last one is absolutely correct. Any white journalist that sticks up for Fabre, they don't want the blowback. And you're right. It is a form of virtue signaling. Yes, it's a bad look. There's no other look it can be for Brett Favre. However, I will give this a bit of advice to any athlete or that's in the position of Brett Favre from now on. Just write a damn check. Just, I'm just saying, just like if it, whether it's a dollar or a million dollars or a billion, just say, there's my check. This is my contribution. Don't get caught up in this. There's no upside. Because here's the thing, though, Jason. Like, you will read that story meticulously, and you'll break it down, um, and then you'll come away with a different conclusion. The general public, which already wants to castigate and convict Brett Favre because it's a juicy headline and he's the big name, they're just going to basically read the headline, maybe the title if it's on the cover, and they'll draw their conclusion within the first two minutes. Brett Favre and fraud. So now it becomes Brett fraud. All right. And you look, I do feel bad for Brett Favre in this sense. Maybe he didn't have the worst intentions. Maybe he thought what he was doing was okay. Maybe, again, he did not have the authority. But again, to future athletes and celebrities, 
Just write a damn check, and that's it. Leave it clean. Walk away. The the, the check, here's what is logical to assume, is that Brett Favre talking to the school president and being a big shot at his mm -hmm. alma mater uh, said, hey, look, uh, we can build this facility. I'll make a contribution and I'll get I'll put some pressure on the governor to cough up some money to mm. pay for the rest. They'll find the funds. And, and, you know, that's how Brett Favre used his celebrity to benefit his alma mater. That is par for the course for a lot of celebrities and and a lot of athletes and a lot of just people with with fame and a following. They use their influence to benefit the institutions that they're associated with. It, 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 this whole thing, as it relates to Brett Favre, could have easily, the governor, no. This Nancy knew, could have said no. Anybody there could have said no, or could have said, hey Brett, uh, the way we were trying to finance this was gonna be illegal and get us all locked up, we can't do it. That's not what happened. And so Brett Favre just kept asking and kept asking because that's probably what he's been doing the last 20, 25 years in yeah, Mississippi. Yeah, but Jason, that's I get it. But Jason, I'm going to just give an example. At the University of Miami, a couple of their meeting rooms are named after Dwayne Johnson. He's done OK. And Edron James. You know what they did? They wrote a check. And it is my contribution. They didn't try to get the Florida governor or the Miami mayor. No, here's a big check. You there. don't know that's that, Steve. I, you don't know that. I, I would bet that they did not try to I would bet I would bet that they probably tried to get no other governor or any type of government official to fund a football meeting room or the running backs room. Come on, Jason. We're being a little bit naive. No, 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 no. No, no. Let me let just because I have plenty of experience with Ball State. And I'm just just because they got a meeting room named after them didn't mean they paid for that meeting room or it doesn't mean that 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 was why the meeting room was named after them because they paid for that meeting room. Could they have participated in parties, in social gatherings where they're trying to uh, influence political people to support it? Absolutely. Again, you, when you go to the press box and to these games or whatever, the president has his box and whatever political figures that have it, they come to the president's box and people ask for things or ask them to support different things. Uh, I'm sure they did cut a check, but it's just a tiny bit but more Jason, complicated than okay, just all right. cutting no, a but check. From, but from now on, just write a check and there. That's what I did. Boast. They always say, don't be a, you know what, you know what, pat yourself on the back and say, take a picture of that check. And say, this is what I did. Don't get the government involved. If you, if these athletes now are going to do this the same way, whether it's legal or not, they're stupid. If I'm, if I'm an athlete at the university of whatever, and they ask for a donation, I want to make it very clear. I will write a check and I will do nothing more. And you, you will name the building after me. And that's it. That's it. I, I would actually sign a deal saying, this is my contribution. You'll never ask me to make a phone call. There's going to be no political favors because you are being dumb if you try to go any further than that, because no good deed goes unpunished. No question that is the case. But I'm sure 
there was a non-illegal way for those government officials to find funding for whatever it was they were trying to do at Southern Miss. There was a non-criminal way of going about it. Brett Favre's defense is going to be, I thought they were going about this in a non-criminal way. Okay. But ask Brett Favre next time he's on the show. Hey, Brett, next time, would you just write a check and walk away? Ask him that. And you'd say yes. He'd walk away with his Wrangler jeans and say, no, yeah, you're right about that. You're right. The Kimster's right. That Asian fella's okay. Just write the check and just get the hell out of here. I guarantee you he's done that before. I'm sure he's written some checks for Southern Miss in the past. And and, and there's a point in the story, and this is where, you know, Mike Rosenberg and Sports Illustrated, they, they, they don't have an interest in getting at the truth. They have an interest in making Brett Favre look bad and fanning the flames. But there's a point in the story where they show it either, I think a text message exchange between the governor and the school president where, where the, the school president is basically, yeah, I've tried to tell Brett to stay out of this and not do X, Y, and Z. And, and the governor mm. says something that makes him look like Brett's out of control. Sports Illustrated at some point alleges that the governor is, is writing text messages to cover his trail, to leave a written thing that exonerates him. And, and so they apply that logic to other text messages, but not this one between the governor and the school president. And, and I read it and go, these are both guys, the school president and the governor, both trying to cover their tails. They've been great friends and probably have done a lot of deals together and a lot of things together. Hey, I need a solid here. We're going to put this on Brett because the reason why they're comfortable putting it on Brett is because Brett is the one guy that can legally say, I've done nothing criminal here. I asked for money. That's it. I have no control over it. Okay. So, I, the sports illustrated story is just sloppy. Okay. Yeah. But Jason, from now on, next time an athlete writes a check and someone says, hey, can you make a few calls? The athlete should say, no. What about Favre? There, that's it. That's it. That's, that's, <laughs> the, that's the advice I have for everybody. Just write a check and walk away. Okay? All right. This, this next topic is perfect for you. Tyson Fury versus John Jones. Joe oh. Rogan. Uh, talked about this on his podcast. It has infuriated uh, Tyson Fury. Can't wait to get your take. Let's play Joe Rogan talking about Tyson Fury and John Jones. Yeah, there's no no one thinks like Tyson Fury could beat John Jones in a fight. Isn't that f-ing interesting? No one thinks that. Tyson doesn't think that. You want to talk about who's the baddest man on the planet? If John Jones and Tyson Fury are locked into a room, game over. I'm pushing all my chips on black. <laughs> I'm just. F-ing. I'm going to tell, tell you something. Tyson Fury is an amazing boxer. He doesn't have a f-ing chance in hell of making it out of that Isn't room. That crazy? He has no chance of making it out of that room. Isn't that crazy? Zero chance. So if you he would have to like catch John. He had to catch like, him immediately. Immediately with one punch. Yeah. And I just don't see that happening, man. You, the threat of the takedown looms so large that shot will come so unexpectedly. When he gets his hands around you, you'll be so stunned. <laughs> so what is that like being John? Like, what is that like thinking there isn't another man on the planet that could do anything to you in hand-to-hand combat? Pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
So that's Joe Rogan's take. Here's Tyson Fury's take. And then you be the arbitrator. I'm the baddest man on the planet. I heard Joe Rogan say something about me the other day and I've been off all the social medias and didn't reply to that little thing. Little midget, bald headed midget. I heard him say that John Jones could me up if we went in the room together. I don't think so. Not a man born for him. Mother can me up in a room on our own. Whatever happens in that room, I'd be walking out. Not a fucking problem. Hmm. Steve Kim, you're our expert. Okay. What do so you say? So what are the rules? If you're doing uh, Marcus of Queensberry rules, yeah, no no one's going to really beat Tyson Fury. Not, not a guy that's not dedicated to it, but if you're going into full MMA mixed martial arts combat in an octagon where you could grapple and you could shoot and you could put people in headlocks, rear naked chokeholds, boxers are really good strikers. They're the best in the world. They're all about the upper body and footwork. But And I've seen this. When they've tried to get into that world where it's beyond boxing, they're okay as long as they're on their feet. But as soon as, the, as they are taken off their feet by guys who are wrestlers or jujitsu, they're powerless. They just simply do not have the physical strength. They don't know the pressure points. They don't understand leverage. Uh, it's different. Now, look, if you said to John Jones, 10-ounce gloves, no headgear in a boxing ring with boxing rules, he would not win a round. But if you're talking about all things considered and it's like a real fight, like it would be in a room and you got to fight for your life, these MMA guys, they're just well-trained. They are human weapons. I just think they're more versatile fighters. Now, again, now could Tyson Fury catch John Jones with the punch coming in? Yes, that is certainly a possibility. But once Fury has taken off his feet, and if he is not the one doing the grappling, and if he hasn't learned any of that, I don't see him beating John Jones. I got to agree with you. I saw a little workout video of some mixed martial art guy on my Instagram this morning, and he was doing all these little crazy things like he'd jump up in the air and then he'd fall down and catch himself basically with his elbow and be in a plank position and doing and then he'd flip over on his back it was all just like incredible stuff and I was like holy cow I didn't even know humans could do this and and it does make me yeah go ahead think about this in boxing theoretically clinching or holding is illegal and they get into it and the referee breaks them up in the MMA they just said, okay, good luck getting out of that. And in some, some of these, look, some of these fights are not entertaining because it's like a boa constrictor just choking someone out. I'm not a big fan of that particular style of fight. And the ironic thing is with the MMA, your most entertaining fights are when it looks more or less like boxing, when guys are on their feet. Now, when it becomes a grappling match and one guy's on top of each other and it's a slow bleed where they're just taking the air out of the balloon – it's not entertaining, but it's highly effective. Some of these guys are like a master lock. When they have you down and pinned, and they're doing certain things that they've trained for 20 years, you literally cannot get these guys off of you, and then you're going to wake up an hour later because you're unconscious. That's where I think Tyson Fury would really be a fish out of water. Steve, uh, final topic, Pat McAfee has stated mm. that he is shocked the way his fans have responded to his move <laughs> back to ESPN. Yeah. He, he's, he had no idea and that they just got to trust him. Uh, you know, he says it's, it has been tough out there. I don't think I expected that. That was a miscalculation. This is Pat McAfee. 
I brutalized the guy and stand by every word of what I wrote and said about him. His fans feel the same way. To, to think you're just going to go back to Disney and ESPN or go to full time with Disney and, and, and not understand that your fan base is primarily following you because they can't stand Disney and ESPN is, is mind blowing to me. I'm going to say something that uh, a lot of people will be upset with or disagree with me about, but I don't think Pat McAfee is all that talented. I, I, I think he's got a great brand opposite ESPN's brand, and that's what makes him popular as opposed to him having some kind of great broadcasting skills. Your thoughts on Pat McAfee? Yeah, I mean... You, you know, this kind of reminds me of uh, Howard Stern. The Howard Stern of today is not the Howard Stern of the 1990s, right, or the early 2000s. And when he went over and became more of the mainstream, didn't he swear, I'm never going to change, I'm Howard Stern, this is my brand, it's who I am. And now the 2020s version of that man is unrecognizable on in a lot of different ways. But it also reminds me of a story that's a little bit opposite is – Great story of Joe Paterno when he's at Penn State, and he had basically accepted the job to be the New England Patriots coach. The Sullivan family had made a great offer, and the night before that he's supposed to sign that deal, him and his wife were kind of going to bed, and, and I think it was Sue Paterno was her name. She just is bawling. She's just crying. She's like, what are we doing? We, you are not a pro coach. We are college people. We're happy here. We don't belong in New England. Said, you know what? You're right. And he called the Sullivan's the next day. Said, you know what? I belong at Penn State. Sometimes you belong where you belong, and it's not about the money. And I, I don't know. I mean, Pat McAfee can swear up and down that I will not change. You know what? You may think that, but Disney and ESPN will change you. I've seen what they do. And the first time he has a true Pat McAfee moment, it won't be about him or his audience. It's about the higher ups. And then the other fact that I was thinking about, Jason, is then you have all these employees like Mark Jones and Ryan Clark, you know the guys, and Jalen Rose. The minute he says something that is not on the cue card or accepted, then he's going to get pressure from them, and then it's going to become really tense, right? And then he's, I think, subconsciously is going to say, you know what, i got to be a good teammate. They're paying me a lot of money. I don't get it. Look, it's, it's not my money. I'm not counting his money. I don't care about his money. But I, I've always said it's one thing if you're making minimum wage at the factory – to take a job that may not suit you. He's already making millions. I mean, he fixed something to me that wasn't necessarily broke. Totally agree with you. Great job. Enjoy Las Vegas. We'll talk to you next week. That's Steve Kim. Don't go anywhere. Hit the likes button. Get the likes up. Uh, if you're listening over Apple, hit that five-star review. Josh Holly. It's my obligation to hate discrimination Raising up your hands for freedom Last night, Glenn Beck laid out the Biden crime family's staggering level of corruption in his viral special, The Reckoning. During that show, he outlined a plan to finally hold the Bidens accountable for their crimes, but it requires each of you listening to take action in order for it to work. 
head over to the reckoningguide.com right now and download our Biden crime family dossier. This guide contains a list of hundreds of crimes the Bidens appear to have committed, as well as the contact information of the prosecutors and attorney generals with the power to bring them to justice. Join us in demanding that these officials take action and prosecute these crimes. Together, we will wage a public pressure campaign so great they can't ignore us. Again, that's thereckoningguide.com. And please join us in calling on these state officials to finally enforce the law. All right. Let's roll out to uh, the wonderful state of Missouri, and we can be joined by Senator Josh Hawley, author of a new book, Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. Josh, thank you so much uh, for joining me and joining us on this show. Your book has perfect synergy with what we talk about every day on this show, and and. Josh, why are we ignoring the problems going on with men and boys in this country that you so perfectly spell out in this book? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's a real privilege to be with you. I think the reason that we are ignoring it by we, the corporate media, entertainment industry, politics, is because those institutions are all controlled by the left. And the left is a big part of the problem here. You know, the left are the ones who have told men for a couple generations now that to be a man is to be toxic, that to be a man is to make America a worse place. So there's this relentless drumbeat that if you're a man, there's a problem with you. The best thing you could do is go down to your basement, turn on a screen, sit there, entertain yourself, maybe buy some stuff and otherwise shut up. And that's gotten us where we are now, where we've got young men with record high rates of depression, suicide, drug abuse. We need to turn this around by getting back to the truth, which is that we need strong men, good men, to lead their families, to serve their neighborhoods, and to serve this nation. Josh, in, in reading your book, it, it just reminds me of like, there's some kind of guilty conscious game being played on men that we have been convinced that we've given women a raw deal and that we should spend every ounce of our energy providing reparations and sacrificing our leadership role that, quite frankly, is why this country is the, has been the envy of the world and we're ignoring the biblical values that God has called on us as men to be leaders. This whole process of this whole mind game that's been played on us just baffles me. Yeah, you know, I think what, what the message is to men now, if you really drill down into it, it's really the liberal elites in this country saying to men, hey, why don't you go and entertain yourself? Why don't you be a consumer, be an androgynous consumer? Don't be a man. Of course, don't be a woman either because they now believe there's no such thing as women. It's all just fake. So just be an androgynous consumer, shut up and let us, let the experts, we will run the country. We will plan your life for you. We will tell you what to believe. You just turn on your screen and be happy. And that is the message sent to men. Be passive, be pliable, be, you know, be, be a good little consumer. 
And I just think we, we've got to send a whole different message. We've got to reclaim for men the strength of what it is to be a man, which is that, hey, you are there to stand up and to take responsibility. You are there to be a provider and to be a protector. You are there to empower the people in your lives, in your life rather. And also that's how you change the destiny of your own life. That's how you get some sense of purpose and meaning. And I think young men are just, they're hungry for that. They're hungry for purpose and meaning and direction. For someone like me, you get as old as me and you see people like yourself like, wow, this kid was a high school football player at Rockhurst High, and now he's one of the leaders of our nation. I'm a sports writer in Kansas City. You're on the Rockhurst High football team. And, and I, I'm, I would have to think the seeds planted, at you, planted in you at Rockhurst High are, are part of what's blooming and blossoming right now and, and calls, causing you to write this book and to take these stances. No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. In fact, just on a, on a little personal note, I grew up uh, I grew up reading you I mean, when you were at the Star. And that's not because uh, you're old. It's because you were young when you were a columnist. I remember when you joined the Star and uh, I was uh, I was in high school at the time. So, you know, I've, I've been uh, I've been reading you since I was at Rockhurst. But you are absolutely right. Tony Severino, who is the head football coach at Rockhurst back in those days, I played for Coach Sev. He shows up in the book because he was a significant factor in my life. Here's a guy who, for me, modeled what it looks like to be a leader, as somebody who believed in me, somebody who called out effort in me I didn't know I had to give, you know, somebody who thought that I could do something with my life. And you know, he was a profound influence. Other coaches and mentors there who also show up in the book because that time was so significant to me. And Jason, it, it has inspired me, what those men did for me, I want to be able to do for my sons and do for other younger men, be able to pass that on, that sense of, of purpose, that sense of mission, uh, that sense of what it looks like to be a good man. And, and nobody modeled it better than that Coach Sev. Well, certainly whatever seeds were planted in you and Rockhurst have allowed you the strength to take the arrows that come your way. As a white man in this society that we built today and being someone of faith, you know, white male evangelicals are defined as the worst people on the planet. Uh, you shake all that off and stand your ground. Uh, how, how difficult is that to see your faith demonized and, and your basically your skin color demonized the way that it is in popular culture right now? You know, I just figure that uh, the criticism comes with, it's part of my job, you know, it comes with the territory. And so uh, yeah, I, I don't uh, I don't pay much attention to it. And uh, I certainly don't feel sorry for myself. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm incredibly blessed. And the biggest blessings in my life, Jason, have nothing to do with my job. They are my wife of 13 years now, my two little boys and my little girl, I've got three kids. And, uh, you know, that is really for me. And this is what really why I wrote the book, because my little boys at home thinking about them, thinking about their future as men, thinking about my duty as a dad to help them grow up. What I have learned as a father and a husband is that if you really want to if you want to leave a legacy, if you really want to change the world, you do that through relationships. You do that through your family. You do that through giving yourself, sacrificing yourself. It's just the opposite of what. The left says it's what the opposite of our popular culture says, which is indulge yourself, right? They say indulge yourself, chase after pleasure. That's not how you leave a legacy. That's not how you live a life of significance. You do it by giving yourself away.
On this show, we talk a lot about <clears throat> radical materialism. And, and I, I just this week started talking about we had with young athletes and just all over social media, everybody thinks getting the bag, getting money is how you prove yourself and that's the ultimate winner. And, and I, I'm, I'm actually now trying to push and, and trying to open people's minds up to like, nah, the bag, that's not the ultimate sign of masculinity. It's what a man will sacrifice to live up to his values and principles and what a man will sacrifice to honor his wife and kids and to leave them in a protected space. That is actually the ultimate sign of, of masculinity. It's what you're willing to sacrifice for the common good of the people you love and others. You know, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I have to tell you, that is the biggest, single biggest takeaway for me in my years of being a husband and a father. If you ask me, what have you learned from that experience so far? You know, Lord willing, there's a lot, there's the whole rest of my life will be spent on that journey. But what have I learned so far about being a husband and a dad? It's that sacrificing yourself is really the key to everything. It's it's the key to seeing your your kids flourish. It's the key to changing uh, other people's lives for the better. It's the key to having a legacy. And I was when I was researching this book, something that really caught my attention. I remember reading an, an anthropologist, and I quote him in the book, who traveled all these cultures all around the world. He said when he was distilling his findings that to be a man is to be expendable. It is to make yourself sacrificial. It is to put yourself on the line and be willing to give your life away for other people. And I thought, boy, that gets right at the heart of the Bible. That gets right at the heart of the best examples of our history. And I, I think really, if you want to talk about what it is to be a man, that's it right there. That's pretty darn close to it. So Josh, in your book, are there action items that can be taken politically, through law, legislation? Is there, is there some type of move that, or movement or laws you can push that can help men become better men? Yeah, I, I think there are, there are policy implications, political implications, uh, several different. I mean, let's take one would be marriage and family. I mean, right now in this country, we discourage marriage in a lot of ways. We discourage it in our tax code. There's still a penalty for getting married. We discourage it with many of our, our, our laws that provide, for instance, for men. We see more and more men who are able-bodied, but who are nevertheless not working and getting generous payouts of various kinds of welfare benefits, even though I emphasize they are able-bodied. I mean, that discourages marriage. That makes men less attractive as marriage partners. We can change those things. We should reward marriage. You know, if you get married, you, you ought to get, my view is you ought to be rewarded in the tax code. I mean, you, you ought to get a benefit out of that because we as a society ought to send the message, yeah, this is valuable. This is good. We certainly should be encouraging work. The other thing I would say, Jason, is that we're talking about work. For 30, 40 years now, this country its elites have sent good paying jobs that mostly men do, blue collar jobs, have sent those away, sent them overseas, a lot of them to China. In the state of Missouri, we've lost over 60,000 in the last 20 years, industrial jobs, blue collar jobs. Where have those jobs come from? The urban core and then also rural America, both of those places. So you wanna talk about how do you encourage men to get a job, be responsible, support a family? Well, you gotta get jobs that pay well 
that men can perform and say, yeah, you know what? I could start a family on this wage and I could do it right here in the place where I grew up. So there's a lot of work we can do in terms of getting the jobs that foster families, getting the jobs that foster communities, and then saying to men, hey, if you start a family, if you commit to the woman you love and you commit to raising those kids, we're going to reward you for that. We're going to say, yes, this, this is something good. We want to encourage it. So I have this radical thought that a lot of the gender dysphoria, the lot of the, the transgender movement is just a further attack on family. And I see the left building, cultivating a massive voting block with this destroyed family concept with, with you know, from Black Lives Matter, they want to destroy the nuclear family to the whole transgender movement, want to destroy men and women. And just and, and so I, I, I see a, a country that was founded and any great nation is founded on the family, catering to the family structure. And, and we've empowered a voting block now that will not have families and many Americans are not choosing marriage. And, and, and so I, I had a couple of, or one really radical ideas. I, I thought, I, and I said it on the show a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, it's like, should we give the family an extra vote in terms of like husband and wife would have their individual vote and then the family would have an extra third vote that they could decide which one. But there's got to be a way to make our lawmakers cater to families. That's the only way this country will survive. And we've pivoted completely away from that. We're catering everything to single parents and gender fluid and the non-binary or whatever. Is there a way to empower the family? Boy, I, I think that we've got to find a way. And I, just to take a couple of, of, of stats, you know, you think about childhood poverty. Well, we know the best way to tackle childhood poverty and to really get it down to zero or close to it in this country. And that is put a father back in the home providing for his children and the woman he loves. Youth violence, gang violence, uh, young male violence. The studies on this are clear. Put a father in the home. In fact, there's one study I cite in the book, Jason. You don't even have to put a dad in every home. If you just put a dad in the neighborhood, just one in the neighborhood, it brings down violence by young men by huge numbers. I mean, it's incredible. So the point is the foundational family there, man and wife and kids, It, you're right. It is the building block of our society. And whether we're talking about giving parents rights at parental rights in schools. I'm a big advocate of this. We need to give them control over their kids' education, give them the right to see what their kids are being taught, give them the right to sue a school district if they won't honor the parents' wishes. Uh, whether we're talking about making sure that the kids, uh, if, if, if some school teacher says or a school administrator says that the kids need to have gender hormone therapy, the parents have to sign off on that. You can't do this stuff behind parents' back. So parents' rights, rewarding marriage, I'm open to any idea that will strengthen the family because I do think you're exactly right. Let me throw in one more thing. I just remember when the Smithsonian, using our tax dollars a couple of years ago, created this now infamous exhibit where they say that the nuclear family is a vestige of white patriarchy. 
And I just thought, this is the most outrageous. They all said the same thing about Christianity also, a vestige of, you know, white culture. I just thought this is, first of all, historically just asinine, but also so incredibly destructive to try and attack the family as basically racist. And yet that's where the left is today. And we've got to have our eyes wide open and be willing to confront it. So the other thing we talk about on this show a lot is journalism. I'm a former journalist, still try to dabble in some journalism. And uh, this whole Durham report uh, situation and, and blowing up the Russian interference 2016 presidential election narrative has been tremendous for me to watch uh, and to see the media and the left and the and everybody exposed. But I don't feel confident there's going to be any ramifications, consequences for this sort of criminal malfeasance. Uh, you know, we've seen people from January 6th thrown under a jail. We're not, I don't have any confidence we're gonna see anything come of this Durham report. Do you think anything comes of it? Well, I, I do think that the pattern here is, is that the people who commit these kind of crimes, like Hillary Clinton, I mean, when you, let's be clear about what happened with Durham, and I know you've covered it. She used the FBI to go out there and interfere in a presidential election to try to rig it. And she almost succeeded. I mean, really, almost succeeded in doing it. And yet, no repercussions for her. The people who helped her cook it up are now in the White House. The national security advisor today is the same person who helped cook up the Russia collusion hoax and sell it to the media and sell it to the FBI. So, yeah, when it comes to consequences, it always seems like the conservatives get targeted for things they didn't do. Liberals get a free pass. I think we have a chance to change that in government if we can root out the corruption of the FBI, if we can replace its leadership, we may have to think about, do we break up its functions? I mean, the FBI doesn't seem very focused anymore on enforcing the law. They seem really focused on interfering in elections and getting into politics. But I'll just say for the, for the folks in the House right now who are pursuing these investigations, using the power of their subpoenas to get answers, I think that's terrific. I, I hope that we can do more. I mean, people need to be prosecuted. That's for me, Jason, the bottom line here is you read the Durham report, people need to go to jail for what they did. The people who the people at the FBI who lied to the courts, who lied to the public, who got wiretaps on false pretenses, those people should be in jail. Not a one of them is. So I want to see some prosecutions brought. To me, that would be real accountability. I... I I, I hate to ask some sound ish question, but, but, but I just have to ask it because it's, it's authentic and real to me. I, I look at a QAnon shaman, guy walks around the Capitol, uh, shouldn't have been there, but I think the guy just did two or three years in prison. Compared to what they're spelling out in this Durham, it, it just seems so incredibly unfair there's real election interference. There's real interference with Trump's presidency. And, and QAnon shaman walks around the Capitol and has to do two years in prison? This, I, this just seems so incredibly unfair to me. I, I, just, I just don't know how we can look voters in the face and, and, and let this type of double standard continue. 
Well, and I think it's meant to be a message to voters. I mean, that's part of it. It's meant to be a message from the people who now run the country, who run the FBI, who run the executive branch. I mean, I think they're sending their message, which is that if you do something we don't want you to do, if you get out of line, I'm thinking about the SWAT teams that got sent to pro-life demonstrators' homes, you know, in, in the wee hours of the morning. If you do something we don't want you to do, we'll show up with SWAT teams. If you at the Capitol, if you trespass at the Capitol, you're going to be charged with, you know, major big-time offenses. You're going to do serious time, but yet we'll allow Antifa rioters to burn down buildings and assault cops, and they won't get charged with anything. I mean, the double standard here, as you point out, is unbelievable, but I think it I think it's that's the point that's the people in charge are, are saying to voters, don't make you know what the right choice is, you know, vote for us. Don't make the wrong choice. And Jason, I just think it, at this time, this is a time to be courageous. This is a time to be fearless. You know, as you as you say, I mean, this is a time to stand up and say, I'm not going to be intimidated by that. And that when we have the ability, we've got to reform these institutions I and mean, we've got to stop the FBI from looking the other way and, in fact, cooperating with election interference by Democrats and then turning around, cooperating with Hunter Biden doing nothing about his many crimes and then turning around and targeting pro-life demonstrators and targeting parents at school board meetings. You know, that's that's an institution that is out of control that has got to be changed. The other institution, the, the IRS, this hiring of more IRS agents, that seems like a direct threat to people that might disagree with Joe Biden and, and the left. You bet it is, 87,000 of them. Now, that's exactly what it is. And the line was, oh, we need them to do more compliance or whatever, but we know what they're doing already. Who are they opening audits on? It's, it's locally owned businesses, it's little family businesses, it's, it's working people. You know, that's what's happening here is that it is more bureaucrats to go after people who won't do what they're told to do. So, you know, I've said as part of these debt ceiling negotiations that are going on right now, if you ask me what I would do, I'd say, let's start with those 87,000 IRS agents and eliminate them all. There's some savings. I mean, let's just, let's not reform it. Let's get rid of them. Let's just get rid of them. But I, I do think that this is a regime that's in power right now with the left. They are not shy about using, abusing law enforcement and the power of the law to send messages that will keep themselves in power. They, they have created a two-tier system of justice. I don't know how you can look at the Durham report and look at the behavior of the FBI and think any different. And that's just not tenable in our country. I mean, that will not, the American people, I think, will not stand for that in the long run, and they shouldn't. You mentioned the debt ceiling. How do you think this is going to turn out, play out? Will, will we get some last minute deal or yeah. where is this headed? I think there will be a last minute deal. I mean, it'll be uh, negotiated between the speaker and, and the president. But uh, I, I strongly, in fact, I'm confident of it, Jason. I thought this the whole way through, by the way. I just think the debt ceiling is a, is a, the Washington game. They play this game every couple of years and uh, they always at the end of the day end up raising it. I've said if you want my vote to, to raise the debt ceiling, then they need to do something about bringing back those jobs I was talking about earlier. So if you want to put some good, strong tariffs on China that would bring back blue-collar jobs for our people in our country, that would bring back some good blue-collar wages for our people, then okay, then I'll vote for it. But if this is just going to be more Washington play-acting, window-dressing, we throw a big fit, then we go ahead and raise this, the debt ceiling, we don't do anything for American workers, 
for American men in this country who need good paying jobs, then count me out. Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about bringing articles of impeachment against Joe Biden. Good idea or just an escalation in a never ending war? Well, I, you know, I, I can understand where she's coming from. I, I doubt that maybe I'm wrong about this, but I doubt that those will go anywhere in the House. What I would say is I would focus right now on the folks who I think we can get real change from. And I'm thinking about the Secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, and I'm thinking about the Attorney General. I mean, those two guys, they are presiding over the most unbelievable miscarriages of justice. You've got the Homeland Security chief who has thrown open our border, who is presiding over a human trafficking operation like we've never seen in American history because of the smuggling, because of the kids being brought across the border and sold into slavery. I've said this many times. I think the House ought to go after him. I think they ought to subpoena him. I think they ought to say, listen, if you're not going to resign, we will bring impeachment articles. I think we got to think seriously about doing the same thing with Garland. I think that sends a message to the bureaucracy that we are serious here that we wanna see the law enforced, that we will do something about this. And I think it has the chance to, to leverage some change. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure you get that from trying to impeach the president right now. I just don't think that's gonna happen. Josh, thank you so much uh, for joining us and taking the time. Uh, you know, I, I do wanna communicate to my audience. Josh is someone I have a great deal of respect for. Uh, this book, Manhood, uh, does not surprise me. Uh, if you know anything about Rockhurst High School and Josh's upbringing, this is right on brand, right what he believes in and has great synergy with what we're doing here. And I, I, I hope to have you back, Josh, because I, I want to, I'm trying to communicate to my audience and, and particularly the black part of my audience that, hey, look, there's some people out here that just believe in God and uh, you can't go for this media packaging of people that believe in God, particularly white people that believe in God. They, they want to tell you they're evil. They're not. They just <laughs> going to stand on these biblical values, the same ones I'm standing on. So thank you so much, Josh. Look forward to having you back. Look forward to one day you running for president. That's Josh Hawley. Uh, I hear tomorrow. That means we'll see you next week. Regrets and our decisions We don't want to go to heaven with freedom It's my obligation to hate discrimination Raising up your hands for freedom Raise up your hands